Blog Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Well, hi, and welcome to the Speedway Show. Today, our topic is Mountains to Recovery. We're going to take a journey over some really high mountains, through some really dark valleys, and on our journey to recovery from loss and pain and addiction. To help me with that conversation today is my very special guest, who happens to be the president of Nine Mile Communications and is also an accomplished speaker and prolific author, Rob Cabito. Rob, welcome to the Speedway Show. Thank you for having me, Speedway. Well, we are going to start for the viewers who are meeting you for the first time. I'm going to start by saying, what would you like people to know about you? I would like people to know that I wrote this book to share my life experiences, really in hopes that maybe somebody can be inspired to achieve their own greatness, that if I can do it, anybody can do this. And, you know, I hear that a lot. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. But I sometimes think, well, now, isn't it that you have a certain set of experiences and uh, a combination of things that have happened in your life that have made it possible for you to do the things that you have done? I think that's a good point. Um, A certain set of circumstances have to come together, and the individual has to want it. And I think at some point I was given a gift of desperation, and I wanted to change my life. And the, I, I guess everything just aligned for me to be here today. So when I think of desperation and the times when I've been desperate, I don't think of that as a gift. And um, it's, it's an interesting way to put it because there's something else that, that I read in your book, and we're going to talk about that. But, you know, you, you talk about your memories being good memories. And when I read the book, I thought, wow, these are good memories. I don't know. Um, So talk to us a little bit about your philosophy of life and, and, and how is it that you can think of desperation as a gift and a good thing? Well, it's interesting because most of my life, I, I, when I would have a memory, I would have a memory of a certain situation, and it was what I considered bad. And a lot of times in my life, I would consider good or bad. Mm-hmm. If I felt good, things were really good in my life. If yeah. I felt bad, things were bad in my life. And I got to a point where when I was given the gift of desperation, I had so many scenarios throughout my history that I really considered bad. I had gone to jail. I considered that bad. I had uh, lived through sexual abuse. I considered that bad. And so there were so many things when I looked at it and I went, wow, these are really bad experiences. And then as I got further down the road in my life, all of a sudden those things that happened to me, I was able to give back to a community or able to give back to a person or able to really change my life and do something different. Had those things that I considered bad not had happened, I'm not sure I would have been in the same position to have the gratitude that I had to be able to give back. And so now when I look back on those situations, I look at them and go, oh my God, I'm so glad that it happened. You know, and I don't think everybody gets that opportunity. And when I looked at those opportunities, I went, oh, why is it happening to me? Now I look, now fast forward a little bit, they influence my life in such a way that I'm able to give back. Tell 
a little bit about your book. So the the conversation that we're having today is actually based on the book, The Fractured Life of 3743, A Journey to Redemption. And as a, as, a, as a starting point, my first thought when I saw the title was, okay, so what is 3743? Mm-hmm. Well, 3743, a lot of times people think that's my prison number. And <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it kind of looked like a prison number. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more digits, but no, it's not my prison number. It's actually my Native American role number. And uh, certain tribes designate numbers. And it helps understand the bloodline, it helps understand the reservation and an appellation of whether it be mineral rights or land and now uh, casino money. You know, it's a way that they dictate how much money and what tribal members belong to which tribes and where they're from. My tribe was one of the tribes that used roll numbers. And so my number 3743 identifies my tribe, my, uh, my name, and then also my family. Okay. So you are then Native American. And what tribe are you from? The Karuk. The Karuk. Karuk, and it means upriver people. And we're from the Klamath River up in uh, Northern California, up on the Oregon-California border. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about what you do today, because then I want to plunge into some of the dark periods of your past. What is it? So you are the president of Nine Mile Communications now. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been doing that? I've been in technology since 1997. Uh, I was on probation uh, when I walked into an office one day and asked for a job, and I told the employer what had happened, and he was very familiar with probation. Mm -hmm. And so he was willing to put me to work, and it was just kind of a crazy experience because I, um, the moment I sat down and touched a computer, it just felt like the right thing. And I started playing with the computer and got on the internet and before you know it, it just it felt like that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I followed that dream, and I went and got a bachelor's of science degree and got an MBA and worked in the industry with uh, some really high uh, big players like Cisco Systems. And that led me to starting my own company, and we uh, started installing data communications equipment for retailers around the country, and now we're in the U.K., and we're doing it in Canada. And, and it kind of led me to achieve and realize my dream. So in addition to that, you speak. I speak. Uh, Is that because of the book, or is that because of Nine Mile, or is it both? It's a mixture of both. I really started speaking uh, mostly in in the recovery program, in the recovery community, and then that led me to speaking as a motivational speaker outside of the community, and then that led me to uh, more speaking events that eventually led me to becoming a fairly polished speaker that led me to speaking about different aspects of my own industry and technology. And so it's a pretty, it's a good mixture of both. Sometimes I'll speak at events and conferences for technology, mm-hmm. and then somebody there will know me from the book or know me from my inspirational speaking, and they'll ask me to do an event for their church or their local service or local charity or whatever it is. And so I, I do a pretty good mixture of both. So this is a positive time in your life. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. So let's plunge back into that other time. Um, <laughs> the darker times. The dark times, yes, the dark times. So, you know, the, the, the reason I was so interested in your story was because so often you hear about alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and how difficult those addictions are to get over, get through, get past, move away from. 
And the fact that you did it, I think, is a testament to your own strength and your own um, tenacity. And so for anybody who might be watching this who is either struggling themselves or who knows somebody who's struggling, then, you know, it's an opportunity to say, well, now, if he was able to get past all of these things, then it's possible, Mm -hmm. right? So let's start with the alcohol and the drugs. First of all, just give us an idea of what kinds of things uh, over the course of your life you have abused. Well, I I think I'd turn that around a little bit and say, what didn't I use? Okay. I I was one of those people. I would try anything to medicate, anything to kill pain, anything Mm -hmm. to kind of hide from my own feelings and and what I considered reality at the time. And so I I did a lot of things. I mean, when we first started, we started with alcohol, and then we went to marijuana. And whatever new drug was introduced at the time, and this is in the 80s, I was willing to do them all. I really didn't have any concept of what they would do mm-hmm. or how harmful they could be. I just knew I wanted to do it. And so it led me from one group of people to another, which led me from synthetic drugs to opiates to pills. And so I, I've done just about just about anything you can think of. I've done it. Crack. Yes. Cocaine. Yes. Meth. Yes. Pills. Yes. Hmm. Okay. See, that's yeah. about as much as I know. <laughs> now we've got them all checked off. Now we've got them all checked off. Alcohol, of course. Yes, yes. So the question then, and, and I thought about this because at the beginning of the book, you start with the what I wait, gripping, shocking, terrifying scene where you're four years old and your father pours gasoline on you mm-hmm. with the intent to set you on fire. Yes. And that was at four, and then things sort of... You know, they kind of went up and down after that, but you had some pretty dark times. Is there any one thing that you would point to today and say, that was the thing that pushed me over the edge into substance abuse, or was it just an accumulation of all that that stuff? Um, God, that's a good question, because it was a, it was a situation where I had a lot of nightmares. I mean, when I was a kid, I... I had a lot of nightmares about my father and my mother and the abuse that had taken place and I had it was almost like a frame like a like you would watch in a in an old theater mm-hmm. you know where there'd be one frame and then another and another and those kind of things came to me over and over and so I really didn't have that that peaceful calm kind of consistent little life that I think a lot of people have is in childhood Mine was always filled full of chaos and drama, and there was one issue after another. But it was when my uh, adopted father contracted brain cancer. He had a stroke, a heat stroke, Mm -hmm. that uh, pulled him out of my life, and it was the loss of a second father. And it was a pinnacle moment for me because I was at an age that I was starting to look for guidance, Mm -hmm. and I needed it. And I was having a lot of personal feelings and and all the dreams and nightmares that I was having I couldn't reflect on with somebody. And they were pulled out of my life to go and take care of him. And as a little boy, I was already confused. Mm-hmm. I was already raised in chaos. And now I have a situation where I don't have anybody to turn to. And I didn't know where to go from there. And it wasn't just your adoptive dad. It was your mom, too, because now she's worried about him and she's yeah. got her own depression issues and everything else, so she's she's no longer mothering you. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I lost her at the same time. I mean, she pretty much dedicated all her time to helping him, which I, I understand and respect today. And she was doing everything she could as a mother to take care of her husband and her family. Mm -hmm. Something was going to get lost. When you put too many balls in the air and you don't know how to juggle very well, yep. something gets lost. Is there a point where, you know, I, I, I've, I've never... I don't have an addictive personality is how I'd put it. And so I've never experienced addiction to drugs or alcohol. But, you know, I hear this term thrown around a lot, rock bottom. And I've never really known if it's, if it's appropriately descriptive or if there is a single bottom yeah. or if there are multiple. Because as I read your story, you know, the thing that struck me is you struggled over many years. And... As I'm reading, I'm fearful for you because I keep thinking, I hope this is rock bottom because mm -hmm. if this isn't rock bottom, then I, I'm, I'm fearful of what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And, of course, then, you know, when you got to the point where you had the car accident, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to wake up and it's going to be great and it's going to be happily ever after. And, of course, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And then when you are hiding in the, in the apartment from Jamal, mm -hmm. who is upset because you robbed his supplier, <laughs> uh, I'm thinking... Okay, this has got to be rock bottom. Hopefully things change at this point. And, and, and so my question is, was there a single place that you would point to and say that was the bottom? Or was it, were you just sort of bouncing along the bottom and you kind of hit and you bounce and you come back and you hit and you come and you, you recover and, and you say you're going to do better and then you find yourself back down there again? Well, I always had intentions of doing better. You know, I always had the intentions. When I when I would say to somebody, I'm going to do better today, mm -hmm. I'm going to get better, I had every intention in the world to make that happen. You meant it. I had no tools to do it. And my rock bottom, I had multiple bottoms. It was almost like, like an onion. It's like peeling layers of an onion back. And there'd be one bottom, and I'd peel one layer off, and then it'd be another, and then it'd be a different emotional issue or a different physical or mental issue, whatever it was, I was just constantly peeling layers of an onion back. And every bottom I had, I thought was the worst that could possibly be. It wasn't until alcohol stopped working as a solution. Because many people looked at alcohol as the problem. If you stop drinking, that's the problem in your life. Mm -hmm. To me, alcohol had always been the solution to all of my problems. Every time things went sideways, I would drink. Every time things were good, I would drink. Every time I had a girlfriend, I drank. Every time I lost a girlfriend, I drank. It was the solution to everything. The day that it didn't kill my emotions, the pain, that was the bottom of all bottoms. Because I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what I was going to do. It was a bottom that I had never experienced before. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle The Speedway Show. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply. The Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. We are talking to author and speaker Rob Cabito today, 
And our topic is The Fractured Life of 3743, A Journey to Redemption. So, Rob, my next question to you is, I spoke to a counselor once upon a time, and I asked him, how do you wrap your mind around the fact that for every person who's addicted who makes it, there are some that don't? And he said, well, you know, for everybody, there is a point where you have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And if you if you make the choice to get better, it doesn't fix it that day. But if you don't make the choice, then you continue on that downward spiral. Is there a point or were there multiple points for you where you made that choice? That's a really good question. There were multiple points that there was actually a day where I sat in my apartment and I was living down in Edina and I had this little, tiny little apartment and there wasn't much furniture in it and it didn't have much going for it. But what I had, I was sitting on the couch and I remember looking outside at these trees and I can hear the birds and it was spring and I just remember sitting there saying, I don't want to go out this way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to continue to fight this battle this obsession, this compulsion every day. There has got to be a better way. And I never put two feet into a recovery program. I had one foot in and one foot out. And I made a decision that day to put two feet in. And I've never looked back. And that was the day, that was the pinnacle moment when I was looking out of that balcony and I said, I just don't want to go through this. From the time you made that decision to the time you felt like you had recovered or you were in recovery for maybe the last time. How long did that take? Well, the time I made the decision to stop drinking, I literally stayed in recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, a, that, was a pro- that was a decision I made, but by the time that I made that decision that I was going to stop drinking and that I was going to start taking care of myself, mm-hmm. that was about four or five months later. So the decision to stop drinking happened. I went right into recovery. And then it was about four or five months later is when I said, I don't want to continue to go through the ups and downs. I really want it to be, I want to live. Yeah. I want to live. I just, that's it. I'm going to read something that you wrote. Uh, At one point when you talked about being clean, you said, without the medication of booze, crack, or pills, I was dying inside. Life was too real. And I, I, I read that and I thought, and this is someone who cannot relate to what you were going through. And I look at life and I go, so what does it mean when you say it was too real? What was it that you were able to disengage from because of the alcohol and the drugs that you were sort of facing at that point? Well, I learned at an early age that booze and, and alcohol, that drugs and alcohol could mask my feelings. Mm-hmm. I knew they can medicate me. And I knew that every time that I would have any level of anxiety if I took a drink, that it would come down three or four notches. I knew that if every time if I got in a lot of fear, if I had a little bit of, of marijuana, it would calm me down. And so they worked. They worked. They worked famously. It's only when it stopped working when I stopped using. If it'll still work, I might not be here with you. You know, but it was really that moment that I had a situation that came up with going through a divorce. Mm -hmm. And I was in the middle of that divorce, 
and I really didn't want to get divorced. Yeah. I really didn't want to lose my home and the car and the little life that we built. Mm-hmm. And I could feel it all. I could feel everything in my heart and in my stomach. And it was like, how do you medicate this? Yeah. And then luckily I met somebody that said, we don't have to. That was a novel idea to me. I'm sorry, maybe everybody knew that, and I was the guy that was left out of the secret. (laughs) That was a novel idea. I don't have to drink. I don't have to use booze. The feelings will come, and they'll go, and I'll be okay. That was novel. Really? Beyond what I ever thought. Okay, but there was a lot of pain, though. Um, You know, you talk throughout this book about the loneliness, and you talk about the vibrations, and I thought that was so fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the vibrations. Well, to first to address the loneliness, there was a lot of pain, and there was no way to address that all at one time. Mm-hmm. It was like layers of an onion. Every time I would discover something about me and I was willing to look at it, it was like compartments. I would open it up, and then I'd do work on it, and then another one, and another, and another. So if I was to face it all at one time, I would tell you now, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Too much. Well, that's what you were running away from. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was too much. It was too much pain, too much too much everything. Um, but the vibration had always been something that had been inside of me since I was a child. I just remember when I would look at this beautiful mountain, this Mount Shasta, I lived at the base of that, and I would feel this rhythmic kind of a vibration that would start at my feet and work its way up, and, mm-hmm. and I would feel the numbness in my fingers, and, and it was just it was this incredible feeling that I could feel the pulse of the mountain, yeah. the heartbeat. And every time I got away from it, the heartbeat got less. Mm-hmm. Then I would get closer to Mount Shasta and I could feel it again. Mm-hmm. And it was like that with people. I would get around certain people and you know how you say, oh wow, I could feel you feel great or yeah, yeah, yeah. that hug is amazing. Yes. That's the vibration. Okay. That's what I speak of. You know, that's a representation of it. You, you know, there's just this time where I could feel other people's feelings and their emotions and I felt like I had to take that on. Like I had to fix it in some way. Mm-hmm. And I learned later on I didn't, and that you know we all have these vibrating patterns of thought and behavior, and now I understand it, and I speak about it in the book because it was so important to my journey. Mm-hmm. you know it's so important to talk about that you know it's not just in nature, it's in all of us, it's everywhere. The nature of the vibrations changed though over the course of your life, it sounded like because at the at the beginning. I got the impression that part of what you were trying to run away from was the negativity of those vibrations that you were experiencing at the time. Yeah. And then it seemed like over the over the course of time, as you started to recover and learn who you were, then you started to experience those vibrations in a different and positive way, in a more sustained way. So it wasn't just this one experience where I was, with the mountain, and it wasn't, you know, it it sounded like you started to feel a more positive, consistent, constant. So was was is, is did I did I get that correctly, or was there at the time that you were growing up, and at the time that you ultimately started self-medicating, was there a constant sense of these negative vibrations that you experienced? There was, and and it, that's very true. And the way you put it is, is and the way I I felt it, and the way I lived it, was my parents had a lot of negativity around them. My mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, 
living on a reservation brings a lot of negativity with it. I mean, there's just a lot of a uh, lot of guilt and shame and a lot of remorse and just a lot of negativity around it. And that's how my life was. That's how I was brought up. And it was a very heavy vibration, and it always sat in the, the pit of my stomach. As and and I channeled my energy toward negative things. I channeled my energy toward drugs and alcohol and other things like that that just continued with that same pattern of thought and that same pattern of behavior that brought me to a point where those vibrations, I couldn't get rid of them, so I tried to cover them up. When I learned how to rechannel my energy into a positive way and moved it from drugs and alcohol to something positive, the frequencies changed. Uh-huh. The frequency inside of me, it was no longer in the pit of my stomach, rather in my heart. The vibration was here and here. Mm-hmm. And that became a very different thing. The frequency changed. Everything changed around it. What I decided to do with it, I redirected that energy. It redirected the vibration, and it moved from the stomach to the heart. So, what kind of vibration do you experience now? It's a it's a real high frequency. I mean, it's a real positive vibration. I can hear birds all the time now. I can feel things. I can smell the the leaves. I take a moment. I live in this moment. Mm-hmm. And and living in this moment, I don't carry the baggage from my past or the worries of the future. And that vibration today, I can share this moment with you mm-hmm. in an incredible way. I remember the Beach Boys singing about, you know, the good vibration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what you're feeling yeah, now, right? right? The good yeah. vibration. Okay, so now one would think that when you changed the course of what you were doing, and you started getting positive results, that that would have been encouraging. And so I'm going to read something you wrote about that very thing. You said, as things got better, I became more fearful just as I did when things got worse. Mm. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because then, you know, it, it made me wonder, so what is the positive reinforcement that you can have when you're trying to recover and find your way out of that kind of addiction. Because on the one hand, it's like, I assume you you recognize that the drugs weren't working because you were losing more than you were gaining. Mm -hmm. Um, But then at the same time, when things went well, when you got the car and the house and the kid and the the job, the stable job that now turned into this career, you know, it didn't have the impact of making you say, oh, yes, this is great. I'm never going to go back to that again. Now you're fearful. Yeah, it's a really odd dichotomy because, like you said, things were really well, or things were really bad, and I was using, and things were really good, and now I'm using again. Mm-hmm. It's like I always had this self-esteem that was very, very low. And um, kids that come from, from child abuse, whether it be sexual, mental, physical, abuse typically have a low self-esteem and I was one of those people. So when things would go really well, I was th- I I thought the other shoe was going to drop at some point. Cuz you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Okay. I didn't feel like I deserved it. I didn't feel like it was part of my life and and so at some point I would look at it and go, it's going to blow up anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not going to last. Yeah. It never does. And I didn't know that I was having an influence on it lasting. It never did because you did not believe it would. That's right. Uh-huh. It wasn't sustainable here. So when did it become sustainable for you? Um, 
You know, after I did a Sundance, I was at uh, a, I did this uh, Native American uh, ceremony down in New Mexico, and when I walked away from that, the preparation was a year leading up to it, so it was it was pretty intense. And when I walked away from that, I knew that if I could do that, I can I can do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty intense, and so I knew at that moment that I could do, I can start doing things in a positive way and then if I kept doing them more positive things were coming to me and more positive things were happening and there really wasn't this other shoe that that was a mentality it wasn't real and at some point in that in that ceremony I stopped believing what was going on in my head I had this whole system built in my head of the way life was supposed to be yes and doing that ceremony started dismantling that. And the way life was supposed to be was the way life had been up until that point. Yeah. And my belief system started becoming dismantled. And when it started breaking down and I started seeing these other positive results like my job and my school and my relationship with my ex-wife and my son and relationships with other men and, and it just it started developing and all of a sudden it's like, wow, I have a lot of positive things happening. And it's happening here first. And it doesn't have to fall apart. Yeah. And there was no reason for it to fall apart. You know, and so that was a that was quite a big change for me. Other than you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Hi, we are talking to accomplished speaker and author, Rob Cavito. So, Rob, I remember being fascinated by the fact that you said at 18 months of sobriety, you did not feel like you were in recovery. At three years, at another point of sobriety, you did not feel like you were in recovery. Do you feel like you're in recovery now, and, and what has what made that difference? Yeah, uh, the short answer to that is yes. And the, what made the difference was my my willingness to start looking even deeper. And I talk about the layers of the onion. Mm-hmm. I came into a program to learn how to stop drinking. I came into a program to try to get the heat off my back. I didn't know I was going to find out all these other things about me. And so 18 months in, there were a certain set of emotional issues that were dealt with. Three years, a different set. Mm -hmm. Four years, a different. And it wasn't until about five years into recovery that I truly started feeling like I had gotten to a place that I'm really living in today. And that's what recovery is. It's all about today. It's all about living in the moment. And I now have enough tools that I can cope with life. I have enough tools that I can now, I have some emotional well-being. But I also have enough understanding about my own nature that I know how to live now. That came five years in. So how do you cope differently? Because, you know, you talk about other addictions. 
Well, it, well my addiction shifts from one thing to another, mm-hmm. and it always has. It was it was alcohol, and then it was drugs, and then it was shopping, and then it was food, and then it was sex, and you name it. I, I'm addicted to, to more. Mm-hmm. I was addicted to everything that would make me feel better. And it wasn't until I really started looking at my behavior and became honest with myself and willing to look at my behavior, that's when it changed. Because at that point, I wasn't blaming other people for what was happening in here. Uh-huh. At that point, I was no longer holding other people responsible for my feelings. At that point, it was all about what I had done. And once I was willing to look at that, I was also willing to change that. And that wasn't changing you or anybody else. It was all right here. Let's talk about culture and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Because you talk quite a bit about that in this book. What was, I'm going to just ask a really broad question, what was the role that culture played in your life and your recovery? What difference did it make? that you sort of came into this recognition that you are a Native American, this is the tribe that you came from, and all of the things that you learned? Well, it wasn't something that I grew up with. I mean, it was inserted mildly at different times when I was growing up, but it wasn't until I had a complete meltdown where I was in the fetal position in my apartment that I was reintroduced into my culture. And it was through a shaman who came to me and and asked me if I, you know, if I knew who I was, mm-hmm. if I knew where I was from, if I knew what my cultural upbringing was, if I knew anything about my ceremonies, my tribe, my nation, the world, you know, anything about us as a as a society. The short answer to that was no. Why did it make a difference? I felt connected. Mm-hmm. I felt immediately connected. There's this rich, beautiful history of Native Americans in this in this country and throughout the world. There's indigenous people, and every one of us is indigenous in some way. Mm-hmm. But I was able to go back and look at where we lived and how we grew up and what our ceremonies were and what we, how, what our language was. That was really important for me. It was really important for me to look at a family tree and know that I was from somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. And that helped. Oh, amazing. I I didn't, up until that point, I didn't know where I belonged. Was it with the athletes? Was it with the stoners? Was it with alcoholics? Was it, mm-hmm. where was it? Where Where do I belong in this world? And once I was able to start connecting myself back into my community, ah, oh, world of difference. That's interesting, because, you know, I'm from, I'm originally from Zimbabwe. And so my, my we call it a clan, which is kind of like a tribe, right? Mm-hmm. My clan, I come from the Moyana tribe, and that's my maiden name, and it's my daughter's middle name. And so when I took my girls, they're seven and nine, took them to Zimbabwe so they could see this is where we come from. Yeah. Um, you know, ever since then, it's been interesting because I find myself from time to time looking at my girls and saying, you are Moyanas, Moyanas don't do that. Mm-hmm. And there is that sense of connection to this is who we are, mm-hmm. this is who you are, and there are certain things that are not acceptable mm-hmm. because this is who you have to be and this is the name that you carry yeah. and you have to respect that name and that identity. 
And so I found it interesting as I read about your journey of, of sort of self-discovery and discovering of this is who I am and this is where I sit, because it seemed to really make such a huge difference. It did, and when I look at this number today, I have such a re- profound respect for it and so much pride in it because I'm connected to something. Mm-hmm. It's an important aspect of who I am. It's no longer my identity. I don't really have an identity anymore. I don't really have to be the president of a company or a man in recovery or a Native American or a role number. I, I don't identify myself that way anymore. But the thing that this did is it gave me some background. It gave me a backdrop. It gave me a foundation that I did not have before this book was written. Mm-hmm. This book brought a whole new view of the world into my life because I was able to get all of these documentations, tribal documentations, and my mother, and court documentations about me. It brought the whole thing together. Spirituality. You were spiritually, I would say, spiritually aware. Yeah. Even from the time you were very young. And yet, that awareness evolved over time. Tell us about the role that spirituality played over the course of your life. Well, as a young child, I always had this connection to this mountain. I mean, it's just a beautiful place, and it, it had this incredible calmness to it. Mm-hmm. And so I was always connected to that mountain, and, and, it, and it led me throughout my life. I always thought there was something greater and something bigger and something more going on than just what's happening and what's housed in this body. So you fast forward all these years and I was able to start cleaning my mind up and my body and my spirit. And I got to a point where I wanted to investigate what was going on out there. How how do other cultures do it? When when we, the way we do it here isn't the way it's done in other places. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know that. I wanted to know how other people prayed and how they talk and what their ceremonies were and what their tribal traditions were. And it led me on this incredibly rich journey around the world. I mean, I've gotten to be exposed to things that I just have a great gratitude for. Okay, so um, do you have... One of the underlying uh, tenets of the Spiwa show is this idea that I call them life manuals. It's the spiritual text, right? So for one person it's the Bible, for somebody else it's the Bhagavad Gita, for somebody else it's the Quran. But they all are our best manual for how to live. Hmm. You've read the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. Have you read other life manuals too? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them that one leads me to another. Okay. You know, I was asked I think you even asked me, you know, what is one of the questions the mo- one of what is the most asked question of me? Mm-hmm. Well, I have about four or five of them, but one of them in particular is you you should put together a manual of books because you talk about so many in this book. Yes. But I've been, these books lead me from one book to another. It's almost like a big jigsaw puzzle. And I've been able to put them together because one author will mention another author. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the index, it'll go to another and another. Um, Dr. David Hawkins has been so incredibly influential in my life. That book, Power Versus Force, uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Russell Means. I mean, there's so many of them. Um, the Four Agreements, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these books, Anthony DeMeo, and these books lead from one to another, and they 
give you a little shard of spirituality, and then they open the door for another and another and another. You, do you find that actually truth is, you find that the string of truth in all of them is the same? So whether you're reading the Bhagavad Gita or when I read the Four Agreements, I thought, this guy must have read the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they talk about things and you're going, wow, I've heard that before. And you look at the Bible, it's like, wow, it's the same thing. Yeah. And that's why when I look at these religious texts and, and I see just so much, this is the only way, that tells me it's not the only way. And if you if you can open your mind long enough to go from that book to another, mm-hmm. you see it's written a little bit different but it has the same message of love, and they're everywhere. And so I think these messages have been given throughout time, just in different languages and different texts and different religions, but the core has always been there. It's just repeated over and over. None of us really have anything new to say. <laughs> no. We change the language a little bit. So I have a nosy question, which is, so what do, do you have particular spiritual practices today? Because you went on this journey, you went through, you did the sweat lodge ceremony, you went through this, you know, you went through this discovery of this is who I am and this is what my people do. And then you read the Bhagavad Gita, which is, you know, really the Hindu Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you what do you what do you do now? Do you have any particular spiritual practices? That's a really good question. I, I don't. I, I don't have that attachment anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I just have this open spirit that I want to experience anything that comes to me mm-hmm. and I really like the idea of other people saying, Hey, have you read this book? And then it takes me on a different spiritual journey. Hey, have you went to this counselor, talked to this person or that? And it just has continued to lead me down a path. And as long as I stay open, I don't have to stay attached. So, attachment. Um, Attachment is not your best friend. Let's talk about that (laughs) attachment because a lot of times... I think in Western society, people think of detachment or non-attachment as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for you? It took me a really long time to get to a place to see just how much I was attached to everything around me. I was attached to outcomes of other people's emotional needs. I was attached to money. I was attached to food. I was attached to TV shows and jobs. And I was attached to appearance and all these things that just drove me insane. And when I started recognizing that, that I was attached and that it was driving my emotional well-being, it was almost like a cord, a cord between me and the whatever I was attached to. And when I cut that cord, I was able to take back a little emotional wellness. And then I'd cut another cord and a little more emotional wellness. And my self-esteem rose and rose and rose. And the less I'm attached to things, the higher my self-esteem gets. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. It's The Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Hi, we are here talking to author and accomplished speaker and student of life, Rob Kabito. Rob, I wanted to ask you about something that really blew me away when I read this book. 
I have walked through this journey. I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. I'm going, oh, that's horrible. And then something happens and I go, oh, that's horrible. And there's something you didn't talk about until deep into this book. And it was when the shaman that you met asked you, without preamble, to talk about the sexual abuse. My reaction when I read it was, sexual abuse? What sexual abuse? There was no sexual abuse. And I'm flipping and I'm flipping and I'm looking and I'm looking. And, 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 and your first response was denial. Mm-hmm. And then he pushed. And then you finally told him. And I thought, wow. Tell us about that. It was an interesting experience. I was, uh, I was going to a therapist who asked me to go and talk to this particular shaman about his journey and my journey and maybe understand Native American history a little bit better. And I met with him at the VA hospital, and I walked down this long hall, and it was downstairs at the VA, and I walked into this room that smelled like, at the time I thought it was marijuana, but come to find out it's sage, and it smells actually pretty good. And I walked in, and there was a gentleman sitting there in the dark, and, and I didn't see him at first, and I started to turn out, and he said, no, you're in the right place. And I walked in, and he flipped a low light on, and he said, yeah. I said, I'm Rob Cabido. I'm here to talk with you. And he was, yeah, I know who you are. And he was kind of snotty, and I, I was <laughs> kind of taken aback by that. But he, um, he said, he said, uh, when did it happen? And I said, when did what happen? And he said, when did the sexual abuse happen? And rather than continuing to push on my feelings and push my buttons, he kind of shared his experience. And he also shared experience of other Native Americans that had been put in boarding schools or on reservations or some of the issues. For the first time in my life, I looked at somebody else that could clearly understand what was going on in here. I didn't see the differences. I seen another man that knew what this journey was like for me. Mm -hmm. And I let it out. And I told him. And it was... um, Part of it was a relief, but part of it was opening up this part of me that had all this pain and all this shame and all this anger and hurt. And, you know, letting that out was not that easy, but I felt at that moment he had been through it. He knew he knew what I was going through, and I trusted him. How old were you when it happened? I was about 10 or 11 years old. And the person who, the perpetrator, was a a girl? Yes. She was four or five years older than I. So you talk about the feelings, and there were mixed emotions. Talk to us a little bit about what what it, the sort of evolution of your feelings about that situation. Well, it's kind of an odd thing because there's, I didn't have the emotional intelligence or maturity to understand really what was going on. And being a little boy and being exposed like that or compromised like that, I really didn't have the language and the understanding or the maturity to really deal with it. So I trusted adults to help me deal with it that brought more shame to the situation and brought more shame to you know, what I had already felt was not right. Mm-hmm. You know, it already didn't feel right. It already didn't make sense to me. It already hurt my heart in a way that I didn't know how to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. So when I turned to other people to help me understand, 
and they told me to hide that, that I shouldn't be saying anything, that even compounded the situation even more. So what did you do with that stuff? Well, it's interesting. I was listening to NPR today, and there was a, a pitcher named R.A. R. Uh, Derrick, who is a New York Mets pitcher, and he also wrote this book, his memoir, and he had the same experience I had, sexual abuse, and went through it with an older woman, and he talks about how his self-esteem was really low. That was me. I had a really low Mm self-esteem, and to bolster that self-esteem, I went and played sports. It was my outlet. I went to places that I didn't have to be at home, that I didn't have to be, you know, what I felt like in that environment that didn't cultivate a sense of trust and safety. And so I went to places that I felt safe. I went to play baseball, basketball, football. I hung out with friends, and eventually I turned to drugs because that was the next safe place for me. But it's really an odd thing. I just I never felt safe. So when you had to deal with it now that you're having this conversation with the shaman, was there a sense that this was part of the pain that you were running away from? Yeah, because you can only bury those things somebody like me, I can only bury them so long. You know, I can only go so many years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now that now that drugs and alcohol were being taken out of my life, the emotional stuff was still there. So I needed to deal with that in some way. And I had gotten to a point that it just kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And I had nothing to medicate it. Mm-hmm. It was coming. It was coming out anyway. So I had to deal with it. So how did you... What were the most effective things that happened for you that you would point to and say, here's how I dealt with it? Because, it, you know, it, to the reader, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, so we're trying to medicate with the alcohol and look at what it's costing you, though, right? So now we're trying to medicate with the drugs, but boy, that's an expensive price. Yeah. And... and but you eventually got to a point where now you're having to face the music and the loneliness and the fear and the you know all those negative things because you're sort of at the end of the rope with all these other ways that haven't worked. Yeah. So what were the things that for you were effective in helping you address all of those emotions? Well, I had gotten to a point where I had lost a brother to heroin overdose, another brother to suicide, a sister to alcoholism. And I really, my thoughts and feelings about myself, my self-esteem was so shot. But I had gotten to a point where I wanted to live. I I honestly knew I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do that, but I wanted to do that. And so I just started accepting little bits of help at different times. And it came from my ex-wife her family, it came from friends from childhood, it came from different places I had gone, a therapist that got me in touch with a friend, that got me in touch with a shaman, a shaman took me to a sweat lodge that told me, and it was like all of a sudden these little things started becoming connected, and I started accepting little bits of help, not a lot, I didn't let a lot of people in, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a lot of love to give or accept, but a little bit, and a little bit led to another person another situation, another job, and another spiritual moment that got me here. How long have you been clean now? 
It's been uh, eight years, just under eight years. Eight years. Wow. And after eight years, do you consider yourself healed? <laughs> or is it still, and the reason I ask is because I had a friend of mine who was in his 70s and he'd been alcohol-free for over 20-something years. And he was still going to AA meetings. Yeah. And I thought that was curious because I thought, wow, it's been over 20 years. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there are still days. When it's still a, you know, it was still, for him, there were still days when it's, it was an issue, and there were still days when it was still a temptation, even after 20-some-odd years. So he had to remain vigilant still. Yeah. So for you, eight years later, do you feel like it is in the past now, or is it still a situation where there are times when you have to remain vigilant? Every day I have to remain vigilant. It's in remission today, mm -hmm. but it's because I'm vigilant. It's oh. because every day I get up with the same mindset. I know that I have to take care of my disease first, and I have to honor it, respect it, and surrender to it before I can move on. And if I don't do that, I get all kinds of emotional things that go on that bring me to my knees. Yeah. And so it's in remission today. Is the emotional stuff, because, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, the emotional stuff that was going on with you back then, have you, do you feel like you've dealt with it now? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've dealt with most everything. I mean, really, a person has asked me before about this book, like the number of people that are in the book mm -hmm. are, you know, are they in your life? Did You know, part of the recovery program is making an amends is going back and changing some behavior and trying to make right in some situations that we've created that we've done wrong. And I've done that. And I've also made an amends or take some corrective measures with myself. Mm -hmm. So I've not only honored my own well-being, but I've honored the well-being of others as well. And in doing that, it's given me a practice, a spiritual practice that I could use every day. Okay. So in your vigilance today, because you're now not going through all the stuff you went through back then, mm -hmm. um, is this normal life now for you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it is. It's, it's very normal, and it's very peaceful. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not chaotic unless I create it. Yes. You know, it's just, it's, I do things like everybody else. Last night I had my son and his best friend over. They stayed the night. We went to a movie. We had pizza. We did, you know, we got up this morning and had breakfast together. It's mm -hmm. very normal, you okay. know. Yeah. So then as you're, as you're remaining vigilant, is it that there is a part of you that would still, if you stopped being vigilant, is it that there's still a part of you that would lean towards the addiction as a way to address, deal with, cope with the everyday emotional ups and downs that you that you or anybody else would have? Yeah, there's a mindset that I have that's kind of ingrained in me mm -hmm. that happens that if I know today I can go to my spiritual food yeah. and get filled up, mm -hmm. I also know that if I don't have that, there's an emptiness and I'll seek something else to fill that up. Okay. Something has to fill that cup. Mm -hmm. What I choose today, that's up to me. Okay. Anything else that you would look at, because we started this,
part of the conversation with the sexual molestation issue. Are there any other... Um, this is a cultural question, really, I guess. Are there certain things that you would point to when that shaman started talking to you and asking you about your experiences? Are there certain things that you would point to and say, I, I, I was at a higher risk of experiencing certain things like maybe alcoholism or maybe even molestation because these are things that within my culture and within life on a reservation we are more prone to. I would say we're not prone to it. I know that's been an argument, mm -hmm. but for us it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing to drink and and it goes many generations and there is a belief system or at least my experience has been that there's a belief system that we either stay on the reservation, feed the reservation, stay with the family, or stay in that oppression mentally. And it's something that's been ingrained in us for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And when I got off, when I left the reservation and left that lifestyle, it was really interesting, the reaction to me when I came back. It was like, you don't belong here. Oh. You you moved. You went to do something else. You're You're not one of us. You yeah. don't drink, you don't do this, you know. And so Was it, it negative? It was negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course. But yeah, there was a quite a bit of negative feedback from me completely changing my lifestyle. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you for, for being having on the Speedway show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle thespeedwayshow. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply.